I'm going to read. I have a message for you tonight, and then we'll do some ministry time at the end. Um, so I'm going to read 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6, which is our scripture for tonight. And the Lord gave me a word out of it tonight for, I believe, where we're at as a church, but it's obviously prophetic for a lot of the church in America. And uh, it's going to be good. So So 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you want to follow along, you'll have to get your Bible out. I don't think it's going to be on the screen. So David, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went up to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. God is enthroned between the cherubim. When they created the ark, he told Moses, I will dwell there. I will meet with you there. It is literally his presence dwelling among his people. New covenant, he dwells in us. He's in this place. He's in us. We are the ark. We are the temple. Old covenant, he's dwelling literally between the wings of the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and, and cymbals. These are all musical instruments. They're having a big praise party, kind of like we just did, as they're bringing up the ark up to Jerusalem. It was about an eight-mile journey, an eight-mile journey, eight-mile parade of praise and worship as they're doing this. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. So this is a good thing because the oxen stumbled, the cart gets rocky, Uzzah is afraid that the ark of God, this precious, holy thing that carries the presence of God is going to tumble off. And, 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 you know, in his mind, he's probably thinking it'll shatter on the ground. Like, and so he reaches out to stop it, right? It says the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Can you imagine this moment doing something that's profoundly good for God, having a big praise party, celebrating him, and somebody does something that maybe they don't realize is offends God greatly and he strikes them dead. Now, before you think, well, this is old covenant. God's nice now. Do you remember that story 
about, what was their names? Ananias and Sapphira got together to conspire a, a plot and cheat and try to get ahead. That's a little song we learned in Sunday school. And God struck them down and they died. Wow. But can you imagine trying to honor God, which is what they were doing? We're going to try to honor God here and give some money, but we lied about it because they said they gave everything and they didn't. They lied. But can you imagine this? All of a sudden it goes from a big praise party to devastation. Disappointment. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means the Lord broke out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. You have to understand this was a profoundly good thing that they were trying to do. Because First Chronicles 13 through 15 records this story as well, but it goes into a lot more detail. And there's a verse in First Chronicles 13, verses 3 and 4. Um, David says why they want to do this. He says, let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. So the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right. During the reign of Saul, Saul fell away from God. He didn't inquire of the Lord. He quit inquiring of God, which means Saul fell away from his daily relationship with God. He wasn't seeking to hear God's voice. And so the ark just went into the house of Amenadab, and Saul's over here doing his own thing, leading the whole country, which sounds like a lot of our politicians current day. They're just doing their own thing, leading the whole country. And so the country of Israel fell into depravity and they were being defeated by all their enemies during the reign of Saul. Because Saul had been chosen, but he was profaning the name. And so God pulled back and let him be handed over to the enemy. And so when David finally becomes king, he says, let's bring the ark up. He's saying this, I want the ark in Jerusalem. I want the presence of God to be central in the leadership of this nation. This would be like us praying a Christian into the White House who who says, I'm making a proclamation. We're going to pray every single day, right? I want to inquire of the Lord. I want this to be central. I want it to be central in our nation. I want it to be central in my life, in your life. We need to be a nation under God again. And that's what David was saying. So it's a profoundly good thing. And yet the Lord breaks out against Uzzah. So they're devastated. So for three months, David's angry with God. He's angry about it. I was trying to do something good, and look what happened. I wonder if any of us have ever been there. 
I was trying to do your will and it backfired in my face. Anybody willing to admit they've been there? I've been there. Anybody willing to admit you got angry? Perhaps you said things like, I will never do this again. I will never try that again. I know for me, when God called me to start this church, that happened, and it backfired. And I said, God, I said a prayer one day, my wife can attest, I'm giving up now. (laughs) And if you ever want this to happen, you can do something about it. And until you do something, I'm not doing anything. I was angry. I was upset. But finally, David has a change of heart. Because David realizes that the fault was not with Uzzah. David realizes that the fault was not with God. God had told him when he made the ark. He said, listen, if anybody touches this thing, you will die. He told them when they set it up. This is in Exodus 25, 12 through 14, Numbers 7, verse 9, Numbers 4, verse 15. He told them, I want you to make poles overlaid with gold. I want you to put them through it. And the priests, the Levites, are to carry the ark on their shoulders. Strict orders. Levites with poles carrying it on their shoulders. And so after about three months, David hears that God is blessing the house of Obed-Edom. And he's like, what's up with that? I thought God was mad at us. God's like, I'm not mad at you. You just said, you just did something that I told you not to do. Uzzah did something I told him not to do. And I believe David has a come to Jesus moment where he realizes this wasn't Uzzah's fault. It was my fault. Because I'm the one who let them use the new cart. We don't know why they chose to use the new cart. David was a man of God who knew the word of God. It says he consulted with people, with the priests. They knew the word of God. They knew how they were supposed to do it. They just chose not to. Remember that part where I said it was an eight-mile journey? The ark was overlaid with gold. It wasn't that big. It was a box maybe that big. Yay wide, overlaid with gold, which means because of the gold, it probably would have weighed close to 300 pounds. Eight miles, marching that thing through hill country, elevation gain to Jerusalem. And somebody goes, I got an idea. I just got this new cart and these oxen that are super obedient and they're awesome. What, how about we just use that? You know, David's wanting to have a big praise party the whole eight-mile journey. And hey, we all love to worship the Lord. Amen. (laughs) 
But if people carry that thing, oh, buddy, how long does it take to march eight miles? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? We're going to be out there all day long. And so it's pretty assumed why they would prefer the new cart. It would be faster. It would be easier, more efficient. It wouldn't be such a burden to the priests because the oxen would do all the work. It wouldn't be such a burden to the priests because the oxen would do all the work. The cart would do all the work. British pastor, author, theologian, Alan Redpath said it this way. We want God's presence very much, don't we? But we like to hitch his presence to some of our new carts. We like to add him to our list of organizations to load him on top of the mechanics of a busy life and then drive. How much of our service is really in the energy of the flesh, I wonder. So often we put forth our hands, but not our hearts. I personally have to wonder with all of our advancements in technologies and music and production in the modern church in America, if we're really just relying on new carts to steward the presence of God for us. We just want to bring our friends to a well-produced church service where they can experience God but let's keep it to an hour and 15 minutes so everyone gets to lunch on time. It's faster, it's easier, it's more efficient, and hey, I don't have to carry the burden or to have the burden of carrying the Lord's presence in my daily life and actually be the vehicle that he uses on a daily basis. So we thrust the Lord on our fancy new cart once a week And then we're free to live for ourselves from the burden of having to spend time with him Monday through Saturday, or in our church's case, Monday through Friday. And we wonder why well-intentioned church leaders are burning out and well-intentioned churches are dying out by the thousands each year. Perhaps it's because we keep reaching out to try and make the Lord's presence stay on our carts so we quench his spirit to our own demise. Leonard Ravenhill in his book, Revival Praying, records this story. This was written in 1961, by the way. In the current issue of Conquest for Christ, the official the official organ of International Students Incorporated, there's an article by Bhakt Singh. This dear Christian leader in India says, the indigenous churches in India have a great burden for America just now and are praying that God will visit your country with revival. You feel sorry for us in India because of our poverty in material things? We who know the Lord in India feel sorry for you in America because of your spiritual poverty. 
We pray that God may give you gold, gold tried in the fire, which he had promised to those who would know the power of his resurrection. In our churches, we spend four or five or six hours in prayer and worship, and frequently our people wait on the Lord in prayer all night. But in America, after you have been at church for one hour, you begin to look at your watches. We pray that God may open your eyes to the true meaning of worship. To attract people to the meetings, you have a great dependence on posters, on advertising, on promotion, and the buildup of a human being. In India, we have nothing more than the Lord himself, and we find that he is sufficient. Before a Christian meeting in India, we never announce who the speaker will be. When the people come, they come to seek the Lord. And not a human being or to hear some special favorite speaking to them. We have had as many as 12,000 people come together just to worship the Lord and to have fellowship together. We are praying that the people in America might also come to church with a hunger for God and not merely a hunger to see some form of amusement or hear choirs or the voice of any man. And then, and then Ravenhill writes, Do we get huffed at this voice in India crying against the spiritual poverty of rich America? The strength of Bak Singh is that he talks of, of he, what he talks of he has done. He has found that Madison Avenue advertising methods and campaign costs needing a Wall Street behind them are not related in the least way to New Testament Christianity. Have we strayed too far to get back again to the New Testament procedure? Have we? Such a question permits no easy answer. You can fade that pad out. I thought I was going to read the whole scripture. We might get back to it. I don't want the OCD people going, I still hear something. I still hear something. <sighs> I believe the reason the American church is not successful in winning this nation to God is because God is not blessing our methods. Because our methods are not his methods. They are in large part new carts. We are creating a church culture where we want to rely on and be known for the presence of God in this church. You got a little taste of it tonight. This is the new normal. I hope you liked it. I'm going to say that again. We are creating a church culture where we want to rely on and be known for the presence of God. We want to gather to experience God, to worship God, to pray, and to hear from God. We want to be a house of prayer, a house of presence, a house of habitation, a house of the word and of the spirit, a house of miracles. We want to spend time with the Lord and enjoy our time with him together. Not looking at our watches after an hour, but walking out in awe after we spent almost three hours and yet it felt like five minutes because he was there. 
When people walk out, we don't want them saying, that church is great, or that guy's a great preacher, or that worship was great. No, we want them walking out saying, wow, God is great, God is real, and I met him today in that place. And yes, I love that church, and I want to go back, but I want to go back because God is there. So, it's time to get rid of the cart. It's time to get rid of the cart. And if I could summarize why we made a decision to have one Saturday night service and one Sunday morning service between two and three hours to give time to the Lord so we're not going, but is it going to be done on time? But is it going to be done on time? You know why? Because that quenches what he's doing. Because we have a a game plan when we get together. We've prepped some songs. I've prepped a message. We kind of have an idea. But then we get into it, and the Holy Spirit starts moving, and cool stuff happens. And people get filled. And people get filled. God does what only he can do. First Chronicles 15, this is what David says, verses 12 and 13. He's going to reinitiate this whole thing again. They're going to do it again. Maybe they stopped about halfway. We don't know wherever the house of Obed-Edom is, right? And so they're going to pick it back up. They're going to do it again. And he has a similar type of praise party. He's repented, and he's like, all right, Lord, I know what happened last time. It was a terrible tragedy. But we are going to celebrate you, and we're going to bring your presence to Jerusalem, the capital city. And we're going to have our lives revolve around the presence of God. But listen to what he says. First Chronicles 15 gives us this detail. He said to them, who are the Levites, you're the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I've prepared for it. Verse 13, it was because you, the Levites, listen, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. God had a prescribed method of how he wanted his presence to be carried. And he said we didn't inquire of him We didn't even think to do that. We just rushed ahead with what we thought would be best, with what we thought would work. And so they changed their method. The priests carry the ark. I'm going to pick it back up in 2 Samuel 6, right at that moment. It says, now King David was told, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Six steps. He's like, oh, we're going to honor the Lord this time. We're going to bless him. We're going to do it the way he wants. 
Some scholars say it was every six steps. I believe they did this seven times throughout their journey. Because First Chronicles says they sacrificed seven bulls. But either way, they stopped at least seven times to sacrifice and to honor God and to pick it back up and to keep going for probably a four to eight mile journey at this point. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, this is his wife, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. He was wearing an ephod, which is what the priests wore, and he most likely took off his outer robe. And she's ticked off that, you know, an ephod was less, less clothing, and the other Levites were dressed the same way. And so he wasn't dancing in his underwear, as you might have heard, necessarily, at, at other times. Um, but he's dancing before the Lord, worshiping. But he's the king. He's supposed to be dignified. He's supposed to be regal. He's supposed to be calm, cool, and collected, and look down on everyone, and let them dance. And yes, look at the children dancing. Yes, okay, that's good. That's fine. But not me. I'm dignified in my faith. I'm cool, calm, and reserved. And David's like, oh no. The Lord is worthy of my praise. Wholehearted worship. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Her father was Saul. Ouch. Or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. She's like, you're making a fool of yourself in front of all these people. And he said, I wasn't doing it for the people. I was worshiping the Lord. That's who I was worshiping. And listen to what he says. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in high honor. And Michael's daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death. The people Michael was so worried about looking down on David, when they saw him worshiping with all of his heart, they revered him. They were going, wow, look at our king. He really loves God. She's busy worrying about what everybody thinks. And everybody was thinking, this is awesome. 
It's the fear of man that was trying to quench the Holy Spirit, trying to rain on David's parade. And David's like, nah, I'm not doing it. The Lord told me to preach on this passage this week. On Monday, I had an impression preaching on this passage. I'm like, okay, just an impression. We'll see. Came into the Monday noon prayer meeting, and somebody said something about David, and the Lord's like, look that up. Second Samuel 6. So I look it up. I'm reading it. And one of our faithful intercessors who's here almost every time, it was getting to the end, and she walks up, and she sat down, and she goes, I just wanted to tell you, you know, in Second Samuel chapter, and she looks down, she goes, six, because my Bible was open. She goes, that's really weird. She goes, are you reading that? I was like, uh-huh. And she's like, verses 14 through whatever. And I was like, uh-huh. And she goes, oh, well, then this is God. She goes, I wanted to tell you, I felt like the Lord told me to tell you, that when people see the Holy Spirit being poured out, the new wine, be careful not to criticize it. Be careful not to criticize it when God pours out the new wine. That's all. And she got <laughs> walked out. It's like, mm. And I knew she wasn't telling me that. That's a word for our church. When God pours out the new wine, be careful not to criticize it. Because you want a dignified faith. Which is another problem in the church in America. Pastors are bound up in it. We want other pastors to think well of us and to be respectful. Dignified. We want our people to think well of us. And you're sitting in church. And you want to express yourself. But what are these people thinking about me if I raise my hand? What will they think about me if I start dancing like those girls on stage? And so we go back. And I'm here to tell you, when we do things God's way, he will pour out his spirit, and he loves it when we celebrate what he's doing. When we do things his way. And the Lord was just delighted in our worship time tonight. Just enjoying it. Yeah, got rid of that old cart. This is what I'm talking about. Got to get rid of the carts. You know why? Because you and I were created to carry the presence of God. We are the vehicle. Church should not be about depending on a one-hour service to win our friends to Christ so I can be lazy and complacent and not spend time with God all week. And go live my selfish life. Church is for the edifying of the believers. India in 1961 found the Lord was enough to draw people. And he mentioned that on purpose. We've seen about 12,000 people coming to our meetings. He said that on purpose because of the American mindset. But if you, if you really let God do what he wants, people won't come. So the question becomes, what is God's prescribed method? 
for the individual, we're created to carry the presence of God. What about for the whole church? We're created to carry the presence of God. To be a home, a house where God dwells. What does that look like? What does that sound like? What does that feel like? And here's where we're going tonight. I am absolutely, utterly convinced that this is directly connected to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, when you get saved, baptized in water, you get the Holy Spirit in you. Ephesians says that. The moment you believe you're saved, you get the Holy Spirit in you. But he hasn't come on you in power to empower you. That's different. Most of the time he hasn't. Some people get all filled while they're in it. It's great. I am absolutely convinced when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you know it, it marks you, and he leaves gifts with you, and they're empowered gifts. It's like they're switched on. They're switched on. And also what it does is you get a sense, and it's hard to describe because we're using spirit-taught words to describe the spirit, as I believe it's in Corinthians says that. It's hard to explain this according to natural terms, because we're talking supernatural. But you get this sense of what the presence of God is. And it's different strokes for different folks. It looks, sounds, feels different for different people. God speaks in different ways to different people, according to the manifestations given to each one, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Manifestations means expressions. And that marks you. I'm also absolutely, utterly convinced what comes with the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the unction to want to pray. And when you pray, and you pray in the Spirit, which is not always praying in tongues, by the way, you can pray in the Spirit and not be in your prayer language. Man, you know things are happening in the spiritual realm. And then you like to pray because you don't know what's happening, but you know it's happening. So you have this sense, stuff's happening. This is effective. And then eventually, like most people, you see answers to those prayers. But I'm absolutely, utterly convinced this is God's prescribed method It's part of his strategy. It should be discipleship 101 for every church. And I'm going to prove that to you. So what's God's method to win the world? I want to get specific. When I came to faith, and I'm, especially when I got in leadership, now I'm supposed to teach people this stuff? How do you do this? What does this mean? I got to know. And it is not enough to say, well, God's method is Jesus. Yes, good job. That was a preschool answer, pastor. 
But what's it look like? What's it sound like? What's it feel like? How do we do this? How do we live this out? So yeah, get them saved. Preach the gospel. Awesome. Now what? Early church, get them filled with the Holy Spirit as soon as possible. That was their method. So they come to Jesus, 12 disciples. You're the Messiah. Okay. Let's argue that's salvation, right? Let's reason that for tonight. They're with him for three years. They're being trained up and instructed in all of his ways. Great. Dies on the cross, rises again, comes to them and says, now, here's what I want you to do. Wait for the gift my father promised, Acts chapter 1. Because John baptized in water in a few days, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and power. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And we have millions of Christians in America that are not empowered. The gifts haven't been turned on. They don't have this sense. It's like praying to an empty sky because they don't have the communion of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul says throughout the New Testament, the Spirit bears witness to our spirit. I mean, that's an experience. I'm telling you, because I've lived it one way, and now I'm living it a different way. I've experienced it. And, and a lot of pastors are like, oh, that's just, you just got to believe by faith. You're saved if you did the thing and got in the water. That's what that means. The spirit bearing witness to your spirit, that is not what that means. That's you taking it by faith. If God's going to do it, he'll do it. That's what that is. The spirit bearing witness to your spirit is something else. The spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. Oh, we cry, a deep soul cry. Have you ever been there in prayer? From the depths of your loins and your gut and your stomach hurts because you've been crying so long. You've been crying out, Abba, Father, we need you. That does not come from a man who has not been filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have this weak, powerless Christianity. It's like, well, I'm going to go to heaven, and, and God, we're so fatalistic that God's going to do what he does. So since I'm going to heaven, I'm really not going to worry too much about the state of the world. Oh, that's terrible. This world's going to hell. Oh, well, let's go to church. That was nice. Are we getting out on time? Okay, back to lunch. You get filled with the Holy Spirit. He will not let you be apathetic. Communion with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus. Acts 16. Holy Spirit's the Spirit of Jesus. You want communion with the living Christ. It is communion with the Holy Spirit. In an experiential way. Man, I'm telling you. And the vast majority of time, it is in prayer. And worship's great. And prayer times are great. People getting blessed and filled. That's great. But the day-to-day is in prayer. This is what the Lord wants. This is his method. Alan Redpath, who I quoted earlier, he said, the ark was nothing less than the burden of the Lord. And the burden of the Lord was to be carried on the hearts of the Levites. 
You ever have the Holy Spirit give you a burden? Come to Jesus. He'll relieve all your burdens. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. That's true for you. And once you grow up out of your childish faith that just wants to go to heaven, I pray tonight he puts a burden on you. I pray burden on this church. I pray the burden of God on this church. His burden for a lost and dying world. I pray that on you. Receive it. Receive the burden of God. You feel it? I've been feeling it. It hurts. It's Gethsemane. It's being here weeping for a very long time. And my brain's going, why am I weeping? My life is great. My marriage is great. My kids are great. It's sunny outside. Church is great. Excited about this weekend. Why am I weeping? Because the depravity we see every day means billions of people will not get to experience what I'm experiencing. And the Holy Spirit is like, son, you have a calling. Son, it is not going to be easy. Because your life is not your own. You've been crucified to the world. Your life is mine now. To live is Christ. To die is gain. How did Christ live? Come to church once a week for an hour, then go live your selfish life? I don't think so. He said to every believer, take up your cross every day, die to yourself. And without the baptism, the unction of the Holy Spirit, ain't nobody doing that. And this crazy thing happens. When you get that, while you're dying, you're like dying and you're weeping for the world and you're thinking to yourself, this is kind of fun. I've never felt more alive. You want to be free from all your burdens? You want to be free from all those sins you struggled with, the entanglements of the world? You want to be free from all that spiritual warfare that's on your flesh? Die. Finally say, all right, Jesus, my whole life is yours. Say this, I'll give up my hobbies. Ooh, we don't like that word in American church. Don't make me give up my hobbies. You said if I delight myself in you, you'll give me desires in my heart. I'm telling you, die. Die. Live your life for him. Everything's for him. Your whole life revolves around him. That's where he's had me. That's where he's taking this church. We're going to be a church full of people like that. Because honestly, when you read New Testament, that's basic Christianity. It doesn't sound like much fun, does it? But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, 
you just always have this eternal perspective. And you're like, I will gladly. You, he ruins you. you lose, the world loses its luster. The movies that you used to crave every night, it just you just don't care anymore. You're like, I know where this is going. I don't want to watch this. I think I'll read my Bible. Because it's what matters. I think I'll actually interact with my children. Because that's what matters. You just start to actually enjoy life the way he means you to enjoy it. And not pacifying yourself on the things of the world. John Wesley said, it's not new things we need, but new fire. We don't need another new cart. People talking about social media is the answer. Oh, the metaverse. Man, early, early, thing, early designs of the metaverse. People were creating churches in the metaverse. And I saw a video where people were going to church in the metaverse and getting digitally baptized in the metaverse. Jesus, help us. It's not real. I'm just going to tell you. You know what the metaverse is? Watch Ready Player One. That's where it's going. That's a movie. If there's bad stuff in it, I didn't see it. Somebody told me about it. That was a lie. I did see it. So, God has a prescribed method. It's Pentecost. Isn't that convenient for what day it is? So Jesus says, wait for the gift. Acts chapter 1, they all, verse 14, they all joined constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, mother of Jesus and his brother. They're constantly in prayer. Okay, now we're going to talk about Pentecost and what happens after. But I just want to point out, after Pentecost, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, one of the things he does is he gives you the spirit of prayer, as I said. Let me just read that. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I'm jumping down now in my notes. New King James Version. And, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit. By the way, before you get all Bible on me and go, well, this is Old Testament. And in the context, this is to the people of Israel. And this is to literally the people of Jerusalem. So this doesn't apply to us. And you do not have a spirit-filled insight of the scriptures. Why do I say that? Because the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who knew his Old Testament better than you and I, said that house of David is Israel, correct? Who is spiritual Israel? We are. Who is the new Jerusalem coming down of heaven, the bride of Christ? Who's that? Oh, that's us. So, Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. NIV says a Spirit. KJV is correct here. The Spirit. Spirit of God. The Spirit of grace. Pentecost, outpouring of grace. Grace gifts, charisma. Spirit of grace and supplication. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of grace, absolutely, lots of gifts, but it's a spirit of supplication. Do you know what supplication means? We don't use that word, probably because we don't pray a whole lot. It's earnest prayer. It means begging. I heard the teaching 
before, well, we're not orphans, we're children, so we don't need to beg. Just say a prayer and then go home and sleep. I wish the Holy Spirit would let me do that. It means begging the effectual, fervent, passionate prayer of the righteous man availeth much. Begging. I told somebody, we were talking about that one time, that teaching. We're we're children, not orphans. That's true. Orphans beg, children don't. I go, Your kids don't beg. My kids beg all the time. And they've won me over before. I've said no a million times. They just keep begging. And I'm like, fine. Well, we don't pray for God. We pray for us. Well, I have not received confirmation. This war is won yet. So I'm going to keep begging and asking under supplication, earnest prayer until I know it's coming. Earnest means with intense conviction. Perhaps the reason we can all agree most American Christians are prayerless. Why is that? Perhaps it's because we don't teach about baptism in the Holy Spirit, so we don't facilitate it. So whole, most of the American church isn't experiencing it. So all their gifts are not empowered. They're switched off. They got salvation. But that Holy Spirit has not empowered them to be able to pray in the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you again, Prayer language is awesome, and I love it, and I use it. But it's praying in the Spirit is not just praying in tongues. In fact, I find tongues is helpful to get you in the Spirit. And then when the unction comes, for me, I start praying with my understanding. (laughs) Because now I know what we're doing here. (laughs) And I start groaning. And I start weeping. And God understands that language. And so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of grace, but he will empower your prayer life. And so let's jump back to Pentecost. Of course, we know what happens. We already read that at the beginning of the service. So the spirit pours out, right? Well, as many modern people reason. Was that just for the apostle guys? That was just for them, right? That early, that was a kind of a one-time thing. We celebrate it once a year. Well, how about Acts chapter 8? When they arrived, 15 through 17, this is Peter and John go to Samaria because everybody's getting saved in Samaria. I think it's Philip's up there just preaching. Tons of people getting saved. Awesome. They're getting saved. They're getting baptized in water to believe in Jesus. Awesome. Salvation. The indwelling. The indwelling produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's the character and nature of Jesus in you. You're transforming your new creation. The baptism of the Spirit comes on you in power to anoint you with gifts and power. The baptism of the Spirit isn't for you. It's for the world. It's to empower you to be a witness, to be an intercessor, spirit of supplication, to get gifts, to build up the church. You're supposed to use those in love to build up the church. That's what the baptism is for, to empower you. So, 
when they arrived, Peter and John, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of Jesus. So they're saved, but the Holy Spirit hasn't come on them, it says, on them. Didn't say in them. Ephesians 1, I believe it says, you get them in you when you believe. It hadn't come on them. It hadn't been filled. So, verse 17, then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the baptism. They received the baptism, okay? Acts chapter 19, 1 and 2, verse 6. There Paul found some disciples and asked them, when he was going through, I believe this is Ephesus, and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? How important is this? I just found some new believers. Oh, great, great, great. Hey, let me ask you a question. Do you receive the Holy Spirit, like baptism in the Holy Spirit? That's what he's talking about. They answered, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. The apostles knew when we got new believers, if they haven't been filled yet, let's get our hands on them. Why? The laying on of hands for the purpose of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. The writer of Hebrews, which I think was Paul, some say Apollos or someone else. It's scriptures. doesn't really matter. But this, you have to understand, this was written, what, 30 years after they've been doing This is after Pentecost. So you could argue, well, you know, Acts 8, Acts 19, that was early on. So they're just wanting to lay hands on everybody. And, you know, it's all fresh. It's fun. All right, we get it. This is written like 30 years later, at least, by someone who's been living this for decades now. Listen to what he says. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taking forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, which is water baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He's making a list of the elemental foundational teachings of Christianity for the early church. And their repentance, we need to tell people to repent, turn to Jesus, right? Faith in God, turn to Jesus, get saved, right? Instruction about cleansing rights, get baptized. Do you understand how basic this is? Oh, by the way, the laying on of hands. Why? Because there's going to be a resurrection of the dead and we're all going to be judged, right? Eternal judgment. Basic teachings of Christianity. What's in that list? The laying on of hands. Well, they only laid hands on people when they're being installed in leadership, which is what we used to do in my church. Are the rest of those things listed there just for leadership? The laying on of hands. Why is that? I don't know. God chose it. (laughs) Don't ask me. Read the Bible. And so Moses laid his hands on Joshua, and God took the spirit that was on Moses, on Moses, on Moses in power to lead the nation and he put it on Joshua the Holy Spirit laying on of hands it's important probably because we carry the presence of God we're called to carry the presence of God to carry the Holy Spirit and so the early church viewed this as an essential doctrine discipleship 101 And so to not teach this, to not practice it, I believe is unbiblical 
and wrong. <laughs> what did Jesus say about the Pharisees? You know, it's you tie up heavy loads, put on men's shoulders. You don't lift a finger to help them. You shut the kingdom of God. You shut the door in their faces. And man, I believe there's a whole lot of churches and pastors, well-intentioned, well-intentioned. They love Jesus. They just have some wrong ideas because of their fear and lack of experience. And they're shutting the door to the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. Because the Holy Spirit's what empowers you to bring the kingdom of heaven. And so, far be it from us. As Paul said in Ephesians 1, 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. We've got to get rid of our carts, our idolatries, our not wanting to spend very much time with God, mentalities. And we've got to learn to be filled with the Holy Spirit to live in step with the Spirit, to be a person of prayer, and to pray in the Holy Spirit at all times and on occasions, as Ephesians chapter 6 commands every Christian to do. Because we're the ones who are called to carry the presence. And so, I want to close tonight. Uh, just leading us into a ministry time where we're just going to pray and uh, over you all to receive the Holy Spirit, lay hands on you. I want to read one more quote from Leonard Ravenhill, again from his book, Revival Praying. He said, a brother just said to me hours ago, Brother Lynn, we can have New Testament revivals whenever we follow the New Testament pattern. I'm sure he is right. Moreover, of this I am fully persuaded with a once-a-week prayer meeting, no church here or in any other place at this or any other time is going to get us to a heaven-born, spirit-operated revival. Before Pentecost was fully come, the disciples prayed. And as they were praying, the Spirit fell on them. After Pentecost, we discover that 28 chapters in Acts mention prayer. He's actually incorrect there. It's only 21 chapters but prayer is mentioned 34 times in the book of Acts, which is more than any other book in the New Testament. For they continued in prayer, says the record. We need prayer to obtain victory, and then we pray to maintain victory. We need to pray about our praying. We must pray unction upon others as they are praying. We must pray alone. We must pray together. We must pray in the night and not cease in the day. Lord, teach us to pray. So we're going to lay hands on you tonight. We're going to pray for the Spirit to fill you. And I pray that he does and meets you in some powerful ways and you get filled with the Holy Spirit. And just know that he's empowering you and he's giving you gifts. And one of the greatest gifts he's going to give you is the spirit of supplication to be a prayer warrior for Jesus. And we have prayer meetings every day except Monday at noon. And we have one at 5 a.m. on Wednesdays. Join us for that. And we're going to have church on Saturday and Sunday. Okay? But the Lord wants you filled. He wants you empowered, okay? And so I'm going to have our, our ministry team come up, those of you who are here tonight. If you could just come up and line up in the front here. 
And to initiate this time, um, I felt led to do something, and I didn't tell the person. So, um, Kathy, could you come up here to the stage, please? (laughs) I felt like Kathy was supposed to start the time by just praying a corporate prayer over all of us. Um, And I pray that you would, I feel like you're supposed to pray an impartation of faith on our church, on everybody. Impartation of faith. Faith meaning the spiritual gift of faith. The faith of God. And Kathy has that. And um, so I feel like she's supposed to pray. And then those of us on our prayer team, we're going to pray over you. And um, I want to give you some direction. I'll just let her pray, and then we'll start praying for you all. And by the way, we're starting a ministry time. I would love it. The invitation is open to all of you to, to receive prayer and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, if you feel like you're not ready for this or whatever, or you just need to leave, you're welcome to leave at any time. But we're just going to start praying and ministering until the Lord's done tonight. And if you want to hang out for a while, that's awesome too. And so I'm going to let her pray, and then I'll give us some direction. Um, so if you would just posture yourself to receive, prepare yourself. <laughs> and uh, Kathy's going to pray. And the Holy Spirit's going to begin moving. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth with your great power and outstretched arms. There's nothing too hard for you, and we know that full well. We have seen your mighty hand at work among us. And we just want to share it. We want others to see and feel the same thing that we felt. So, so God, right now, Holy Spirit, I ask you to move, to move on this congregation, to fill each one with your power, to fill them with your love, and to give them an impartation of faith. Fill them up, Lord, from the top of their heads to the bottom of their feet. Fill them up like you did the ladies in the back during worship that said they were hot from the tops of their head to the bottom of their feet. God, I believe you're using your power already in the room, preparing us for this night and for your spirit to pour out. And we thank you. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for for doing what we cannot do, but you can. In Jesus' name, amen.